Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 30th, meaning tomorrow is Canada Day. So hope everyone has a good Canada Day. Simon, what are you doing for Canada Day? Um, I think I'll take it pretty easy. Probably go for a nice You're bike ride. Yeah, I am on vacation. So probably go for a nice uh, mountain bike ride in the morning and then, uh, you know, have some drinks in the afternoon if we can find a free patio. What about you? Oh, the patios are going to be juiced. I wish you luck. Uh, <laughs> I'll be up at my cottage. We're going to, there's going to be some drinks in our future too. So uh, cheers to that. Hope everyone has a great Canada Day. All right, let's get right into it. We got some news. Uh, I've been getting lots of questions. Why is the trade desk up so much? The trade desk has been in the stratosphere portfolio for a bit now, and it is up 30% this month, including a 16% jump on the news that Google is delaying the phase out of tracking cookies until late 2023, which does affect their business. Um. Simon, can you tell us what's going on with Etsy? This acquisition strategy is really seeming to take hold. Yeah, Etsy is uh, going on a little shopping spree, uh, no pun intended. They recently acquired this week Brazilian online marketplace EL07. ELO7, I would think that's how it's pronounced. Um, it's ELO7, that's true. Elo- yeah, ELO 7 for a total of $217 million, um, and which is an online marketplace that allows users to sell handmade products. So very fits very well with the Etsy business model. There's 56,000 active vendors and 1.9 million buyers in Brazil specifically. We've talked about Mercado, Mercado Libre before. Brazil and South America is a huge market there's not that much online penetration just yet so i can see this being a very good acquisition they've also mentioned that they will keep using the brand um, elo 7 so they'll have it under their umbrella a little bit uh, berkshire style if you'd like they buy businesses they let them run it um, and just kind of bring it under their umbrella without changing the actual business the other acquisition they made that was about a month ago they acquired depop for 1.6 billion based on last year's revenue of 70 million so it's not it's pretty expensive um, depop is a social shopping platform it's a bit like ebay and instagram mixed together i had uh, some fun just researching it yesterday so it's more of um for me it's more of an instagram specifically made for uh, influencer or people to sell either used clothes or some of their own brands it's really specific to selling whereas obviously instagram has a lot of other uses i know there are instagram stores but this one is specifically for selling Um, it's free to list on depop and there's a 10 percent fee once you sell and that 10 percent fee includes shipping costs so they take care of that and personally i've said it with uh, elo7 i think these are really good acquisitions they go very well with the business of etsy um, and I really don't have any reason to not believe management. They have a really good track record so far. So all I have to say, I'm a happy shareholder. I'll see how this develops, but uh, no reason to doubt them. Yeah, they've really... I, I When they first came out and said, we're going to be this house of brands, of these, this house of brands is what they kept saying in their 
in their calls and in their earnings presentations. And I was like, oh, yeah, they made an acquisition. They made an acquisition here. But they're like really deploying a lot of capital, like almost $2 billion in the last two months. So they're really getting it done on the acquisition side. And Depop, I mean, there's got to be such high conversion rates on an app like that. Like you literally go there not only to see what influencers are doing on that entertainment side, but to actually make purchases. And it makes me think of the conversion rates on an app like Pinterest, where if you're an advertiser or you're looking to sell goods, the users that are going on the platform have literally gone there to make the purchase. Like the intentions matter versus if I go on uh, Instagram, I might just want to watch you know, videos that PGA posted or what, what the you know, highlights from last night's hockey game. So the intentions are very different and it's a really good business model. I, I've seen a lot of uptake on Depop from Gen Z, but we'll see. Maybe I'm going to have to download it, Simon. I'm going to have to get with the Gen Zers. I love how the old millennial had to explain to you what Depop was. <laughs> I have no idea. I know like I'd heard of it, but before this recording you're literally explaining what it is but sounds like a good idea uh yeah all right visa did announce a definitive agreement to acquire tink tink is an european open banking platform that enables financial institutions fintechs to build financial management tools products and services uh this sounds a lot like Visa couldn't get the Plaid acquisition. Visa tried to buy Plaid for $5.9 billion last year, which is similar to this. It's an API banking platform that connects financial institutions. Tink is different, but this looks like Visa. Like, okay, we had $6 billion to set aside for an acquisition of this API company. Tink's a pretty good target. Uh, let's put one point eight out there. So... I don't know much about Tink. It's a European platform, but uh, Visa is making acquisitions with their absurd pile of cash and the amount of free cash flow they generate. So I expect more uh, acquisitions out of them. Uh, Hopefully the DOJ doesn't keep shutting them down because I am a Visa shareholder. Yeah, I wonder if uh, European regulators will have anything to say about uh, that. Yeah, time will tell. Time will tell. Uh, what's going on with U.S. banks? They're coming out with earnings. They're following the footsteps of some blowout quarters from the Canadian banks. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the U.S. banks are doing, especially the big banks, are doing quite well. They've all pretty much passed the stress test by the um, over there. Um, I can't remember the exact name of the, I think it's a Dodge Frank Act or something like that. Anyways, they have stress tests they need to, uh, to pass. I'm not a bank expert, but uh, Wells Fargo... They just announced an 18 billion buyback program and they doubled their dividends. Goldman Sachs, they increased their dividend by 60%. JP Morgan increased their dividend by 11%. Morgan Stanley also doubled their their dividends and they're increasing their share buybacks. Bank of America increased its dividend by 17%. And really of the big banks, the only outlier there was Citigroup. Um, They're keeping their uh, dividend steady. I mean, I I think they're probably being a bit more conservative. We'll see if they change course in the upcoming year or so. 
Um, but it really sounds like the banks had put some money, some reserves aside, especially for the pandemic. Now they're able to release a lot of those reserves. They're passing distress tests by regulators with flying colors and they're rewarding shareholders. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, and I had talked about this maybe two episodes ago that the the Fed was telling the Canadian banks to fill the war chest, no buybacks and no dividend hikes. And now that you know that's going to be allowed again, this is what we're going to see out of the big Canadian banks too. I, I'm thinking big dividend increases, man. They they're sitting on tons of excess capital, uh, well above that CET one ratio that we talked about, and. If this is a sign of what's to come, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something very similar when we when we record the next quarter for Canadian banks. So time will tell on that. Yeah, exactly. And it'll be interesting to see, especially if interest rates starts going up. Um, that should benefit banks. It usually does, depending, obviously, if you have the credit risk on the other end that uh, people start defaulting a bit more because of those interest rate hikes, but it'll give them a better opportunity to make money on that interest margin. So the spread between what they're lending people uh, money and what they're paying people out in terms of interest. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. Doesn't matter if it's US banks or Canadian bank, that's always a big source of revenue for banks. Yep, well put. All right, let's move on to a segment of limit orders. First, market orders. These are the two most common ways to buy or sell stock on your brokerage platform. Limit orders and market orders. Simon, do you always use a limit order? I would say um, probably... I, actually, I think I do market order more often than not because uh, for the most part, stocks that I will buy will have high liquidity. I was going to so, say, if it's something super liquid, just yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly. I tend to do that because I've been burnt in the past where I put a limit order and then I end up not buying the the stock for a few percentage points at most. And then it goes then, up 5% the next day. Yeah, or in long term, you're looking back and like, oh my God, how the hell did I miss on that just for a few percentage points? So that's kind of the mentality that I use because I'm a long-term investor. If it's highly liquid, I am pretty much always putting a market order in. If it's not highly liquid, then that's when the limit order really comes in handy uh, specifically because there can be a big spread between the ask and the bid so that's really where i would use the limit order i've used both before but i tend to use market orders more yeah well put okay so let's break that down for a second um when we're saying something that's super liquid it just means that a lot of shares are trading hands there's a lot of what you'll see on your brokerage volume now, you don't need to be an expert on what is a lot of volume and what's not. Uh, if you're an active trader, you'll be familiar with those terms. But really, at the end of the day, if it is a large cap company, chances are there's lots of volume moving on it and you don't need to worry about doing a limit order. I typically do, but it doesn't – you really don't need to. You can run into a situation like Simon's talking about where – you know, you didn't execute the trade because you tried to save one penny and then the stock goes up 5% the next day and you're like, wow, I'm an idiot. So, okay, so a limit order is an order to buy or sell stock at a specific price or better. 
a buy limit order can only be accept, executed at the limit price or lower, and a sell limit order can only be executed at the limit price or higher. So if I'm buying a stock and it trades for you know $39 and I put a limit order at 38 if the stock goes to 38 from 39 then I'll execute my trade. If someone actually sells in that in that range. Now, sometimes that just might not happen and it it might go higher, or it just doesn't meet that threshold and then the the trade just won't be executed. So that's a that's a limit order. A market order is an order to buy or sell a security immediately. This type of order guarantees that it will be executed, but does not guarantee the execution price. A market order generally will execute at or near the current bid for a sell order or ask for a buy order price. So all that's saying is there is a ask and a bid that you'll see on your brokerage. There's going to be a small spread. If you do the market order, it'll give you the best price or it'll try to find you the best price, but it'll be executed immediately. Now, typically, you can do a limit order if the stock trades with low volume. Because if you do a market order on a stock that doesn't trade hands very often, sometimes you can pay a really crappy price because you end up just executing and there might only be one seller or one buyer. I mean, this is, that's super low volume, but these things happen. So if it's a small cap company, use a limit order and protect yourself that way. If it's not, don't worry about it. Just run a market order. Like I, I'm talking to myself here because I'm the I'm the guy that tries to save two pennies on a limit order. And then I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm holding this for the next 10 years. This two pennies is not going to make a single difference uh, on the on the on the long-term performance. So that's a general overview. Did I miss anything? No, I think that's good. And I mean, I think it's really important for micro caps. So I know we get a lot of questions from people about micro caps or small caps, especially those will tend to have much smaller volume. So you're you're probably better off doing using a limit order. But like Braden said. If you're looking at like a medium cap or bigger for the most part, I mean, by all means, use a limit order if you want. But from experience, I know I've been burned on that before. And, you know, saving a percent or so when you're investing for 10 years, I, it really won't matter in the long run. It, it won't matter. Uh, and, and if you do want to do a limit order, like say something... Uh, trades for you know say something like google it trades for like you know over two thousand us dollars and it trades for 2350 and you put it in at 2350 just let it sit for the day if you want to do that limit order you probably should just do a market order because google is so liquid but if you do just be patient you know the market's going to be open for however many hours left in the day Chances are it's going to execute as long as you're not putting it too far below what the ask and bids are. Uh, it'll probably get executed. So just got to be patient. It's like everything in your portfolio. If you just be more patient, chances are you will do better. I think that's a pretty good summary. If you yeah, do and less, you can, 
Yeah, the last thing is you can do, you can set the time, right? So you can put until when the limit order is valid for. So you could do it for like two months if you'd like. I don't think there's really a time limit, right? Is there? I don't know. I've never done it. Because there's good till complete and then there's like you can put an actual time frame on it. If you don't specify the time frame, it'll do good through the day, like to the market close. And then it'll expire. But you're right. You can you can extend it out on your brokerage. It, it'll be different for each brokerage. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, if you want to own it, just own it. Like you're not like, what's the point of saving a dollar if you want to own the stock? Just own it. It's not going to be a big difference in the long term. All right, let's talk about value traps. How did this come uh, come to be? We got we're getting questions about Bombardier. I think it's because I was talking about Bombardier Rec Products, which is a fantastic business and probably the best asset stripped out of Bombardier. But we were getting questions about Bombardier in particular. And uh, the concept of value traps came up. So talk to me about value traps, Simon. Yeah, well, let's start by saying that it's Bombardier. Um, let's uh, uh, that's the first thing. Of course. <laughs> How could I mess uh, but- that up? Yeah, someone asked me, uh, and sorry, I don't remember the the Twitter handle was probably a couple of weeks ago about Bombardier and with the Canadians doing so well. If we can talk about them, uh, you know, in the spirits of Montreal uh, going really deep in the series. And it made me think about value traps um, specifically because I know we have a lot of people that are value investors on this podcast. And that's really something value investors will be susceptible to. Um, you try to find a, a business that's trading at a really steep discount and, you know, sometimes there's indicators that says that it may not be a great idea to invest in that, even though it may be uh, showing, it may be cheap at first glance. So what is a value trap and how do you identify it? So first of all, value trap will typically have very low multiple. An example of this was Air Canada last year when COVID hit. When looking at their previous 12 months earnings, Air Canada had a very low price to earnings ratio because the price had tanked due to COVID-19. People were seeing how they were being affected, yet they were looking at the trailing 12 months for profit. So you had a really low price to earnings. So just at the first glance, if you're not doing any due diligence, you're like, wow, this is a great deal. Like, why aren't people buying that anything i would say as a general rule of thumb um, anything below 10 p you should examine closely i'm not saying it's not a buy i'm just saying you know single digits p um, there's usually a good reason some sectors will tend to to trade cheaper than others but if you see something like that that has a very low p uh at the very least, do yourself a favor and make sure you do a lot of research on that business and why it is that low. Um, it could also be a very low price to sales ratio, a low price to free cash flow ratio, a low price to enterprise value ratio. If there's really something that comes out super low, it just means you need to do more due diligence at the very least. It should be a bit of a warning sign. Um if they have a dividend, the dividend yield may look unusually high for the industry. This is usually because the business is not doing well and management does not want to bite the bullet and cut the dividend, but the market is pricing the stock accordingly. So the market's starting to see that 
management, whether they want to admit it or not right now, they will need to cut that dividend. And a really good example of that was last year. Again, March, April, oil and gas stocks were tanking. Retail stocks, same thing. Um, a lot of them, I remember, they had like 10 plus percent yield. Uh, there were REITs as well. Retail REITs were like paying like a 13, 14 percent dividend yield. Um, that's usually a big sign, a big warning sign that the market is telling you that a dividend cut is coming. And if a dividend cut is coming, you know, the stock may have tanked. It'll probably tank even more. Um, so those will be some signs that you're dealing with a potential value trap. Um, and now I'll go on how you can avoid it. But before that, Brayden, did you have anything to add? No, you bring up some good points. I mean, when you invest in a value trap, by definition, you're investing in a company that you think has is, is trading at a deep discount to what to its intrinsic value, but it's a value trap because the business is struggling in structural decline the has all these headwinds in the business the balance sheet is deteriorating management is a revolving door you know all the classic concerns that a business has and let's not kid ourselves many businesses that you see out in the stock market today just won't be around in 20 years and that's a great that's an interesting concept that a lot of new investors struggle with when uh Berkshire Hathaway had their AGM earlier this year they showed the top 20 by market cap businesses in 1980 and then they showed the top 20 by market cap businesses of today and not one single of the top 20 from 1980 was in the top 20 of the S&P today and that is a powerful concept to understand that there are going to be some losers. There are going to be some businesses that are in structural decline. And even if it trades at six times earnings, hey, yeah, it could be a, it could be a good value play. There could be some deep value there. But you're going to really have to have some insight into why the market is wrong. Because the market is wrong sometimes, but... It's not always like there's probably something wrong with the business if it perennially trades so cheaply. Um, do you know what I mean though? Like, and, and what can happen, what can happen is when we talk about a business that's growing exceptionally fast, let's use, let's use a business like Shopify that trades at a multiple of some absurd sales multiple like 50. They don't really make any earnings, so there's not even a point of talking about PE. And it has always kind of traded in that upper outrageous sales multiple. But the stock's done so well, and it's kept it's it's held its it uh, it's held its multiple because the business is growing so so fast that maybe in ten years, even at a fifty sales multiple, it's really cheap. Now that's just one example. Now let's think about the reverse of that of a business that's super, super cheap from a multiple perspective, but the sales are actually declining. Now, the inverse thing is happening where it's actually super expensive at six times earnings. Uh, so when you're talking about multiples, you have to talk about the business quality and the, the growth trajectory of the business as well. 
And if you don't factor that in, you will walk into value traps all day long. Yeah, exactly. And when you find a good value play, say you're really looking at a good value play, oftentimes there's going to be a short-term disconnect. It won't be a prolonged, you know, the market's down on that. If if it's prolonged, it's usually because there's a good reason for it. But if there's a more shorter-term disconnect, that's where you can find some really good value plays. One that comes to mind for me is um, I... Some years ago, I subscribed to a service because they had a deal. And then from time to time, I would look at their, uh, you know, their recommendation. And when I really stopped looking at it was because they were recommending Altagas when mm. it was clear, so clear when you looked at their financial statement that they were going to cut the dividend because they were having 130% consistently payout ratio in terms of free cash flow. There was no way they could keep this on. This um, service was still recommending them for whatever reason. So when I saw that, I think I had a year left or something after that and never looked at it afterwards. But what I did end up doing is when they did slash their dividend, I started researching Altagas even more. They brought in new management. New management had a track record of turning around. And the stock had tanked so much that I started a, I would say, small, medium-sized position. Ended up making something like 75% within a three-months period because management had a solid plan. But again, it was a short period of time. And it goes to show that if I had invested maybe six months before that without doing that due diligence, I would have not had that return. I would have had a significant loss. Yep, uh, that's a perfect example. So perfect example. now I will give you some points on how you can avoid a value trap. First thing, the easiest thing is just to stay away from deep value investing. Um, that whole uh, Warren Buffett's uh, trying to get a few more puffs out of that cigar. But um, so that would be the first thing. But if you do like value, deep value investing, then make sure you know the investment extremely well, since these type of businesses tend to be struggling like we just talked about. So you'll need to identify which one is struggling on a temporary basis and which one is not. If the business has no chance of turning things around, you really should not be putting any money in it. And I cannot stress that enough. So if you do an analysis and you really don't see much probability that they're turning this around, you should stay away from it. Make sure you know management and management has a solid plan and track record. Allocate accordingly if you are deep value investing. Chances are that you'll be right on some and wrong on some. So you want to make sure that you're not being wiped out just because you have a really strong conviction on a deep value play and you end up being wrong. Know when to sell if your thesis doesn't play out. So if management has a plan and things are still not turning around after a while, you should have an exit strategy. It's better to lose 50% on your investment than losing 100%. Um, and really, I can't stress that enough to have an exit strategy, even if things turn around as planned, whether you want to keep holding it for a long time or you have a certain price target or a certain price uh, metric that you're looking at. So make sure you have a plan. Um, so those are the big things to keep in mind if you want to avoid a value trap. Yeah, well put. And it just makes me think of you have so much capital. 
you, you only have, or so, let me rephrase that. You only have so much capital. Why sacrifice quality of the businesses you're investing in? And don't get me wrong. There are deep value strategies that, that do work. But those deep value strategies require a fair bit of active management, which just really isn't our style. We'd like to buy great businesses and do nothing. You know, it's that the old buy great, do nothing. Now, that is a powerful compounding machine. It's probably the most successful investing strategy of, of all the best investors of all time. And if you do do that deep value strategy, you actually are forcing yourself to do some active management doing a lot of trades because what you're trying to do is buy 50 cent dollars and maybe sell them at 75 cents or, or a buck. So you're trying to buy something that deep, is deeply trading for below intrinsic value and then trying to sell it when it, the market puts it back somewhere near its intrinsic value. Now, this is really hard to do, and you catch a lot of falling knives, like you catch a lot of value traps, and it can take a long time for the market to say, okay, your $0.50 cent dollars now worth $0.75, cents, or maybe the full 100% of the intrinsic value that you think it's worth. So that, that requires a few things. That means you have to be right about what you think the intrinsic value is, and that's always not easy to do. And then two, you could just be waiting around, waiting around like, hey, the markets, you just sit all day. You're always so pessimistic because you think the market doesn't know anything. And that's a really easy way to not get investment returns. When high quality businesses continue to do well, continue to grow earnings, continue to grow revenue, widen their moat, and then you're buying these businesses in structural declines and trying to sell them for you know, a little bit more than what they're trading for. It can work. It absolutely can work. It's just not our style. And I, I think you'll make more money and sleep better at night buying great businesses and holding them for the long term. Uh, well put. And let's not confuse the value investing with value investing. They're to me, they're two separate things. You can still find some very good businesses when you're value investing because you're trying to find good businesses trading at discount. These tend to be a bit more turnaround plays like a break. Structural decline. Exactly. Businesses with long-term decline. Um, so that's just keep that in mind. If you want to try it out, just be aware of the risks and make sure you do your research. I cannot stress this enough. These are the companies you'll have to turn every single rock over to, to make sure you know everything about it. And even when you do, you might still be wrong. Yeah. So, and let's not, yeah, let's not mistake those because I consider myself a value investor, even when I buy businesses that, you know, are growthy. Because I think that they're going to be worth a lot more in 10 years than they're worth now. And that's what value investing is. You're trying to buy something below what you think it's going to be worth in the future. And uh, yeah, so I mean, growth and value are attached at the hip. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah, well put. And now we'll talk about the case of Bombardier. Um, so this one really, really hurts to talk about it because it was such, um, you know, back in the day, it was such a Quebec 
kind of company where you know it has a great history and we've talked about the recreation vehicles even public transportation vehicles before uh, but over the years unfortunately bombardier sold off a lot of their businesses actually most of them have been sold off so they sold off like i just mentioned recreational vehicles now it's um what is it again brp brp yeah brp Uh, they've sold us public transport vehicles. They recently uh, finalized the sale of rail transportation. So they sold that to Alstom SA in 2020. Um, and they've sold on their infamous commercial jets, the C-Series, which they got a lot of government funding for. Um, so what's left with Bombardier? Uh, I mean, not much. So <laughs> according to their own website, now they have a strategic focus on business avi aviation. Basically, private business jet is now their main focus. As of September 30th, 2020, they had 12.2 billion in backlog orders for that. But keep in mind that as we've seen with Boeing and as we've seen with Airbus, these orders can always be canceled, although there is a cost to do so, so they can be canceled, but there will usually be a fee. Airbus and Boeing saw a lot of that uh, due to COVID. Some of the warning signs when looking at Bombardier, and I'm not doing a deep dive here, I'm just showing some of the warning signs that you can see because I can I consider Bombardier a value trap. So as of March 31st, 2021, um, their latest financial statement, they have 3.1 billion in cash, 9.5 billion in long-term debt, including 2 billion due within the next 12 months. And that's probably the biggest alarm bell right there, the 2 billion, because yes, You could look at this, think 3.1 billion, billion in cash, that's not bad. But when you look at the debt of 2 billion due within the next 12 months, it will all depend whether they can get that refinanced or not. If not, they'll have to pay that most likely with cash or issue stock, which I don't think is a good idea for them because they've all already diluted their stock quite a bit over the years. They have 1.3 billion Uh, 1.34 billion in revenue Q1 versus 1.52 billion last year. Last year did include their rail division, which, like I said, was sold to Alstom. The deal was closed in January of 2021. They had 184 million in gross profits versus 290 million in interest expense. So that's a big warning sign right there. Free cash flow negative for the past 10 years, and I. I just had a quick look and I copy paste it on the show notes here that we're working off and Braden, you can see it. It's just, uh, it's just a, it, it does not look good. The free cash flow metric is just negative for the past 10 years. That's what it is, just negative. It's, you know, some years more negative than others, but we're not talking 50 million than negative. We're talking minimum. Their best 10 years in terms of free cash flow negative was half a billion dollars of free cash flow negative. That yeah, that's terrible. I see uh, you on the Google Doc here. You posted some screenshots of those sexy ten-year financial statements you can find on Stratosphere, and these are the least sexy ten-year statements I've ever seen. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a it's a tough it's a tough scene looking at these. Oh yeah, these it does numbers. not look these, good. The ten-year graph on their revenue is like, um, I mean, it went from it would look great if it was backwards. Billion. If we flipped the x-axis, it would look wonderful. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, just looking at it, you don't even have to dig all that much into it. You can just look at the financial statements and you'll see that there's some red, red flags going on right, left and center here. Um, another thing that's not great is their shirt count has increased by more than 30% in the past 10 years. That's not something you want to see especially not for a low a business that's declining like Bombardier. And this is all despite the fact that they've received billions in tax dollars in the taxpayer money over the last half century. Um, I don't have the exact data for that, but I know it's in the billions. I've seen more than one, uh, one source on that. So it's I mean, it does not look good. Maybe the governments will step in because I know there's a lot of jobs related to that in Quebec and Canada as a whole. But um, I, I'm not sure if you can even count on that. And you shouldn't invest in a business just because you think the government will step in because there's obviously some serious problems with the business if that's your only reason to invest in the business. So. If anyone's interested in Bombardier, I mean, make sure you do your due diligence. But personally, there's way too many red flags and um, it's too bad, but I would not invest in that business. There are businesses that are so good. It's unbelievable to think in this day and age how good some of the businesses are in terms of margins, growth, crystal clear balance sheets, secular trends behind them, and putting your money in something that is just in structural decline is just not for me. And before we get a Twitter message saying, yeah, but Bombardier stock is up 136% since the COVID low, don't care. We're talking about something that you want to own for 10 years. And this just ain't it, unfortunately. It's a sad story because think of, you know, this was Canada's darling of innovation and engineering. Uh, too bad. Too, yeah, too and bad. I've been... This happens, man. Businesses, yeah. businesses cutthroat, businesses competitive, and that's good. Capitalism mm -hmm. is good, you know? And so. yeah, like I said, I, I've... I grew up in Quebec, so I, I lived in Quebec my whole life. Um, so it, it's especially hard to look at Bombardier from that lens, but it is what it is. This is the current situation. Um, it's your money, and you should definitely, when you see a business like that, I know it's a dollar fifty or whatever it is. I know it's very low. It's like a penny stock at this point. Um, I know it could look attractive, and we've talked about low price stocks before you know it doesn't mean that it's a good value play yes it might be a dollar fifty or whatever it is it doesn't mean it will double it doesn't mean that it will go up it could go to zero so just keep that in mind a low dollar price for a single share does not mean anything you have to look at the numbers the valuations you know what's going on with the business and that's that's what we just did here Yes, here for the people in the back. The share price does not dictate anything, <laughs> like literally anything. All right, last segment of today's show. I wanted to talk about Costco because I've been thinking about Costco a lot lately. Um, I do not own the stock. Uh, disclosure, I do not own the stock. Are you a Costco member? Well, my family is, but I'm not personally. I think I benefit from them being Costco members because when we go to the cottage, we stock up 
on all things Costco. And my parents just love it. And you know what? When you think about businesses that customers just love, Costco comes to mind. People love it. You know, it's like it's like these new businesses that, you know, they become the biggest fan of and they become the marketing team is is like when some when you meet someone and they have a Peloton and they let you know in three seconds or they do yoga and they let you know, hey, I do yoga. Don't worry, guys. I like yoga too. Um, but Costco is like that, you know? People love it. Okay, let's talk about Costco because I've been thinking about its network effects. And it's not a typical network effect. And And for those, just to recap what a network effect is, a network effect is the concept of the more people that interact with the product or service makes that product or service actually better. People always talk about social networks as the network effect as a perfect example. Uh, like Facebook, the more people that use Facebook makes using Facebook better. So it's this positive feedback loop as you know, just compounding, making the service better. And Costco has been compounding over time how good the service is. So when you think about the business, it's really interesting because their mission is to provide the lowest cost for their members. And by doing that, they're actually optimized. Their goal, their mandate, is for the lowest margins possible from a gross margin perspective on their their items. Now, that's a weird concept, right? You're looking at around a 10% markup from what they get in the store from their suppliers compared to a Walmart or a retailer. You're looking at around 25 to 30% markup. So that's a big difference right then and there. Costco is set on making sure that the service they provide and their retail warehouse experience provides members with the lowest possible prices. Okay, so that's their mandate. Now, as member counts increase, this is where the network effect comes in. As net, as member counts actually increase, so there's more Costco members, Costco is then able to go to their suppliers and say, hey, we have X number of, of members. And they're going to get economies of scale from their suppliers to make the prices even better. So over time, maybe because of inflationary reasons, prices probably go up. But over time, the value or the actual costs of inflation adjusted are going down over time. You know, how weird is that? That's a strange concept. It's like the opposite of pricing power, but that's exactly what Costco is trying to do. So Suppliers are happy to work with Costco because they have such a positive experience. I'm going to get into the culture later. But they reliably move so much product. Like they turn their inventory over like at an obscene scale and frequency. And they're easy to work with. So they can get suppliers to give great pricing with this economies of scale model. And the economies of scale gets better as you have more members. So this is an interesting concept, right? So Costco has op operated much differently than other companies. Jim Senegal, the founder, he should be known as one of the best operators in history. He's obsessed 
with the experience of when you walk into a Costco. You know, he he's he's uh, famously been uh, found that they wanted to raise the price of that dollar fifty hot dog, and he was like, "You idiots! No way! Like, there's no possible way we're doing that." So his obsession with the experience and customers and and stakeholders is different than most companies, most public companies. They've actually been working with the mindset of a private company while being publicly traded. You know, they're the people who work there love it. They pay them well, like double minimum wage, well into the mid-20s just for working there. And on the three-legged stools of stakeholders, you have shareholders, customers, and employees. Now, most public co's value shareholders like the most. Costco has actually been very equal in how they manage that with the customer experience being obsessive, their employees being treated amazingly. So there's, they have happy to work there. They're helpful to the, to the customers and they stay there for a long time. And because customers and stake and employees are treated so well, they believe that the third one, which is shareholders, will be taken care of because of the other two. Now, this is much different in, in the way people think about private companies. And Jim Senegal is, should really be praised for this mindset. Um, and it's a very interesting model. So you, then you get this, this high-margin membership business that has this recurring revenue, and they really pioneered that membership model. Because of their network effects, you know, they have 800 warehouses and stores, they're just so easily able to increase comps over time and compound and, and just increase the value of the service they provide over time. And uh, that's all I have for Costco. I'm kind of mesmerized by the way they look at the world right now. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I knew it was a great company. I've never really looked at it all that much, but I know they make most of their money too out of memberships and they have a really high um, renewal rate as well from memberships. Uh, just take myself when I moved out from uh, my parents when I was 23, I got a Costco membership. I still use it to this day, the same membership. I renew it every year, and uh, my fiance and I will go to Costco. We've been going a little less often, but that just means it's more expensive every time we go. <laughs> <laughs> and the basket still... sizes are so big. Like it's like oh, yeah. industry leading revenue per square foot in retail and industry leading basket sizes. I mean, of course, you're buying you're buying bulk, but they have really optimized the experience and after they build a store they continue as the store matures continue to extract same same sales growth like clockwork and uh, they're just doing a lot of things right yeah yeah i mean uh I, like from my personal experience i'm not a fan of going just because i find it's always so busy uh, but yeah, it's hectic, but I tend, you know what works is you go around uh, dinner time. It's usually that's, pretty quiet. That's probably that's my pretty trip. smart. Yeah, just because I find people usually later, they're not cognizant of how big their cart is, so they just kind of leave it and then you're stuck, you have to move it. So I just, you know, I find it's good for... Uh, 
Well, you must be hungry too. So you're walking out with a huge basket size when you're hungry yeah. at Costco. Oh, yeah. they're stocked Usually, up for months. Or one get of one, uh, those pre-made meals you can just put in the oven. and Those uh, are so good. Boom. Yeah, yeah, those pre-made meals are bomb. And then let's also just have a quick discussion about how good the Kirkland brand is. Their in-house brand has a recipe for excellence. You know, like everything that they have done they they really have a focus on excellence and the kirkland brand is like no other right is the urban legend i don't even is this true but it's like gray goose vodka for the the we don't no actually they they sell um so i went to a wedding in alberta and over there they sell uh, they have like kirkland alcohol yeah they do which i I remember just ontario because the lcb ontario and quebec i don't think quebec has it because i think for them any hard liquor is through saq but um, yeah. they have wine in Quebec, uh, but they don't have the Kirkland brand. Uh, I was I was surprised when I saw that in Alberta. I was just like, "What? They sell booze?" Yeah, you Albertans, I'm jealous. I want some of that Kirkland vodka. But if you are if you play golf, I play too much golf. But if you play golf, you need to try out the Kirkland golf balls if you haven't already. They're so soft. They have an unbelievable amount of spin. Um, for the price, it's just unbelievable. Apparently, this is what they do at Kirkland, right? They snipe, they take, they headhunt like the best person or the top person at some other company and then take them to come replicate it at Kirkland. So then you're getting like the best brand's quality. It's not like you, know, you go to the grocery store and you you buy like chips. You're not, you don't feel good about buying that off brand, but you do feel good about buying the Kirkland brand. Right. Yeah. So they've just had this recipe for success. Yeah, they have something good going. But uh, did you have anything else? I feel like we're just rambling on how good Costco. Is. <laughs> we're just getting into how good Costco is. I'm hungry now. Thanks for listening, guys. Happy Canada Day. Tomorrow is Canada Day. When you're listening to this, you have already had your Canada Day. So I hope it was good. Go to GetStockMarket.com. You go there, get redirected to Stratosphere. You see those 10-year financial statements we're talking about. You're going to see uh, if a value trap is coming in with those declining revenues over time. You're going to see that on the 10-year uh, trend rather than just three years on some other platform. So that's GetStockMarket.com. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it, and we will see you next week. Take care. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.